When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership Podcast. Subscribe now so you don't miss a drop of straight talk you can't get anywhere else. We discuss the whiskeys to drink, music to listen to, and what it really takes to be an effective leader. I'm your host, Galen Bingham, the leadership strategist. Tonight's guest, retired educator, Dr. John Russell Garris. Hey, what you drink? That in part is what has led to this conversation. I am just so excited that we can capture this uh, because, you know, another area I want to get into is, and, and, and this is probably the real reason and the real foundation of so many of our conversations. And it's just that your life experience, your career, your the jobs you've had, they're not the typical jobs that you would expect people to have. And 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 I know it they probably seem pedestrian to you because you've lived it. But uh you got a, you know, your PhD at a time where not there weren't very many men of color getting a PhD in education. Superintendent uh, you were in public education at a time when you probably could have made a whole lot more money doing something else. Uh, and then you spent time running a community center. <laughs> Again, you probably could have done something else and made a whole lot more money, but there was a there was values driving you that I, I don't know that we see today. Let me tell you, honestly, for me, when I left Michigan, I had some experiences there. Well, it wasn't only in Michigan. It was West Virginia, too. Honestly, now I got banged around a lot, but my goal was to try and make the world a better place. I mean, you know, I, I came up during that generation. And at that time, you know, Black males getting uh, college degrees, advanced degrees, you know, you had corporate places that were making it attractive for you, I mean, offered more money than you're making. I always wanted to have a job that I could support my family in a comfortable lifestyle. But money was not a motivating factor for me. Again, I mean, I, I didn't want to be no pauper now. I, I want to be nothing like that. I wanted to have my own house. Yeah. There were a couple of instances. Once I remember when I was uh, director of a community house, settlement house in New Haven. And it was in the summertime. I was in the neighborhood of the community center and I was sitting outside. I mean, you know, you're young. So, you know, you dressed in the popular mode and all that kind of stuff at the time. And I was sitting out with this guy from the project. You know, we were sitting out and uh, he said, I got something brand new, which meant he had uh, a hip, a hip class. He's, he said, man, it ain't been open. 
So, you know, we sat there, we, we drank a little bit, we talked. Bottom line, make a long story short, he said, look, he said, I, I can't deal with people who talk about how great life is in the projects. He said, hell, man, all of us that live here want to get the hell out of here. He said, nobody want to want to stay in here. At that time, um, Cross High School was one of the top basketball high schools in the country. The coach there, Bob Salisbury, that's uh, John Williamson was there, uh, who went on to play in the pros, a couple of other guys. And I, I knew them because they would come by the community center. And I saw John, I remember when John, John uh, made the uh, New Jersey, whatever the team was, the Dr. J was on. And I saw John after um, he, he left the professions and basketball. And I was talking to him. He said, man, he said, look, he said, man, if I ever caught my son doing some of the stuff I did, he said, man, I try to break his leg. <laughs> he said, people don't understand what this is really about. He said, I didn't understand it at first. So at, at the community center, you meet people, you talk to them. Um, they get to know you. you. You don't wear your title and your credentials. You know, you know, you got them. So, you know, you, have to, you know, you have it. You don't need right. to. Nobody right. don't need to prove it to you. My name is Russ Garris. So that, that's what motivated me, trying to feel that I could play a role. But, you know, you get banged around and you realize that. You may help a couple of people. There was one guy, I remember Rudy, Rudy, who was at the community center. And he said to me, he said, um, why do you stay here? And I said, Rudy, you make it possible for me to stay. Rudy, Rudy went on from high school, got into technology. Um, I'm not sure where Rudy is now, but then there was another guy who worked there. I don't remember his name. Ru Rudy was a participant at the settlement house. This other guy was a high school student and he worked at the settlement house. And I could tell that he was always high. I, I just, you know, you, you know the deal. I mean, he, he was, he was in, the, in the pharmaceutical. <laughs> and he said to me, he said, Russ, he said, man, you got a natural high. He said, you just up there all the time. I said, no. I said, um, I, I don't remember the exact words of what I said to him, but it was the kind of thing, it was a place I wanted to be. You think you're making a contribution. I had an excellent, excellent director who, uh, Al Tyndall. Al, Al was the kind of guy who taught you how to deal with power before Cassius Clay changed his name to Muhammad Ali. When he changed, there was a mosque in New Haven. And I don't remember the Iman's name, but they wanted to host Muhammad Ali. And Muhammad Ali was coming. Nobody in New Haven, including Yale University, would permit them to rent a facility to host Muhammad Ali. Al approached the Iman. And he said, look, to make it legal, he said, you know, we will do a legal thing. He said, look, you sign this paper. He said, uh, you can use the community house for a dollar. And they hosted Muhammad Ali. Al, Al Tindall was behind that. 
The second black coalition in the United States was backed by and initiated by Al Tindall. And Al even told me how he got the money to do it. Al was the kind of guy, Al was the black power broker in New Haven. That was at the time, now Dick Lee was the mayor. Dick Lee was a close associate of the Kennedy family. Dick Lee prided himself on knowing everything that was happening in all the communities in in New Haven. Al backed, strategized with the guy, Hank Parker, who came to be the treasurer of the state of Connecticut. Al Tindall was behind that. As I mentioned, Al Tindall was behind the Black Coalition in New Haven. The first director of the Black Coalition was a graduate from Yale Law School named Hugh Price. Hugh Price went on to be on the editorial board of the New York Times. Al Tindall was behind that. You had uh, the alternate from the different neighborhoods. The majority became Black. Al Tindall was behind that. Uh, he, he was the kind of guy that was behind the scenes. He was never out front. In addition to that, Al became the vice chair of the New Haven Board of Education. When Al came to New Haven, Al was the director of the Dixwell Community House. That's where I went. And that's even the story how I got there. I don't know how he got appointed to the Board of Education, but this was in the late 50s, early 60s. At that time, there were less than five Black teachers employed as full-time teachers by the New Haven, Connecticut Board of Education. Now, it wasn't that you had a lot of Black women. They were secretary. They were college graduates. Al was behind the change in that, getting more Black teachers, more Black administrators. Al Tindall was behind that. But you didn't see him in the papers. But Dick Lee, who was the mayor of the Haven, he knew. Yeah. You know, you know, and you're touching on something too that I, I you know, I had I had a conversation uh, at the beginning of season two uh, with Jared Simmons. So if you're listening to this, double back, check out my conversation with Jared Simmons because we got into this conversation about, you know, both he and I are executive coaches. And there is this notion that a coach is a coach is a coach. Once you go through the training, once you kind of hone your craft, you can coach anyone. There's some truth to that. I can coach anyone of any position, you know, any country. uh, There's some truth to that. But he made the point that there is something to be said about context and that there is a context that an African-American coach has with an African-American client that can't be taught, that can't be transferred. And so I want to bring that back to what you were just saying about uh, African-American teachers and how, in your opinion, I mean, you're you're professional educator, how important is it to have teachers in the classroom that if not are identical to, but at least somewhat look similar to the students uh, in the classroom? How important is that? Right now, you know, that that's a double-edged sword, to be honest. I'm going to tell you this, then I'm going to go back and tell you about another experience with a white administrator. 
there is definitely the potential for that to be a positive impact. But at the same time, because you have the pigmentation in, in your skin, doesn't mean your brain cells are in the right place or your ego is in the right place. Because again, you have some people, and, and again, over-experiences transcends ethnicity. You have some people, black folks, who have been damaged one way or another. It's like people who've been colonized. There's some of them that try to out-colonize the colonized. So to answer your question, yes, there is the potential for that. But at the same time, you have folks who don't look like the students in the classroom. They're, they're going to be challenged. My forte and background and love has always been the secondary level. I'm not a person who's good at the elementary, not a person who's good at the middle school level. My area is the high school. I just feel more comfortable like that kind of setting. And one of the issues at the center, well, it's, it's more than the secondary level. And it's not talked about in the literature and it's not talked about in the classroom. In the teacher training institutions is the element of fear. I don't care whether it's a predominantly white school, which I've worked in, whether it's predominantly minority, whether it's economically stressed or economically blessed, the element of fear. What I mean by fear is what the kids are going to do. You don't read about it in the papers. And there was an experience I had, and I'm going to come back to this. My first administrative appointment was in a predominantly white, middle to upper middle income high school. And I totally misunderstood, misunderstood the superintendent who hired me. I thought he was saying to me, you're going to learn how to run a school district by working in this high school. I thought he was saying to me, you're going to learn how to run a district in a school by working in this white high school. You'll learn, the, you'll learn things here that you can take, and it'll make you a better administrator. It wasn't three months I was there. I went back to see him. I said, Frank, I said, the bleep is no different. He laughed. He said, I didn't think it was going to take you too long to find out. He said, yes, skin color is an issue. He said, yeah, it's there. He said, but look, these parents are dealing with the same kind of thing. He said, they're dealing with the same thing. There was a older middle school principal, Irish. He said, Russ, you look at things in terms of white and black. He said, I look at things in terms of Irish and Italian. Hmm. I said, wow. There was another situation. There was a guy, Sandy Plant, who we were in charge of similar projects. He was much more credentialed and internationally traveled than I was. He gave me this article to read. Now, in the same, same district, he said, uh, who do you think they're talking about? I said, you want me to tell you what I really think? He said, yeah. I said, that, that's, uh, um, 
white person talking about a black person. He laughed. He said, no, that's a Scandinavian talking about a Hungarian. Wow. When I went to Yonkers as the deputy superintendent, Reggie Mayo sent me down. He said, Russ, I want you to go down and look at town hall. Come back and tell me what you see. I walked around, went down there and came back. And uh, I said, you know, there was a unique thing. I said, it looked like everything was painted green. He said, yeah, what kind of green? I said, honestly, Reggie, I said, look to me like an Irish green, like the shamrock. He said, yeah. And don't you forget that there's a difference between Irish green and Italian green. Wow. Okay, w- w- what I'm saying with that is that, again, there was a time where I almost went off the deep end. But there were experiences that had happened. And I remember one when I was up in Michigan. I mean, I <laughs> this was during the 60s, and I, I was on the, the deep left side. And my wife said to me, she said, Russ, she said, look, uh, she said, uh, don't get confused now. She said, uh, some of the people that hurt you the most look just like you. Mm. And some of the people who helped you most don't look like you. Wow. Simple statement. But to this day, oh, I never forgot. You got to say that again. You got to say that again, because it'll be easy for that to just slip right by people. So you, you said, what was that? Don't forget, and this goes back to the teachers, When you, your, your point, some of the people that hurt you the most look just like you, and some of the people who've helped you the most don't look like you. Mm. That's an answer to your question about teachers. There's the potential. Yes, there's the potential, but just like me at the high school, I knew the challenge was coming. And one day I'm walking down the hall. Kids say, yeah, we know why you're here. You, 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 you're the black assistant principal. I said, look, I said, um, I'm responsible for the freshman class, the way that it's set up here. There's an administrator that's assigned to a class and you follow that whole class through their whole, whole career here at the high school. And, um, oh man, look. There were some serious, serious conflicts at that time. But once kids see that you care about them, and it's not whether you walk around and put your arm around them and buddy this and buddy that. Uh Uh-uh. If they see that you know something about them, you know their name, that you want to be fair across the board, you got them. And there were two guys. One modeled himself after Muhammad Ali. The other guy modeled him after, modeled himself after some white leader. These two guys, Galen, I mean, fought all the time. And in a high school, in every administrative appointment I've had as a building administrator, I made it a point to be in the cafeteria and to be at the front door at the start of the school and be at the front door at the end of the school. Why? Because if something's going to happen, and I'm going to tell you how shrewd these kids were, it's going to start in the cafeteria, some way, shape, form, or manner. And what these kids would do that scared me, that they were so shrewd, they would start a conflict. This is the biggest three-year high school in Connecticut. First, 
you know, you have student assistants that work in the uh, main office, you know, to assist. They would always have a girl. I never knew who the girl was who had access to schedules. At that time, you know, you didn't have computers. Everything was on cards, three by five cards. So say they want to get A, they would find out, okay, where is A, the third period? A during the third period is on the third floor in the left wing of the building. Okay, we're going to create a commotion on the first floor in the right side of the building. So the administrator is going to run over to there. So then we're going to be up in the A because we're going to get that guy up there. Mm. So all the administrators, one place in the building, they got somebody up in the opposite side of the building. And you don't even know what's going on till it's too late. You can't get up there. That's how true. Kids, once they knew, white, black, blue, green, once they knew that you cared and you were concerned. And again, that's not just buddy-buddy stuff. They would say to you, look, at 11 o'clock, be here. Or go to the second floor and check lock at 332. Um, Or look, at 9 o'clock, you know, be by the back rear door over here because what kids would do they put a rock in the door mm. and the door would close now at that time they didn't have sensors so the door would look like it was closed but it's not locked because there's a little pebble in the door person come in the back door you don't even know they're coming into the building but they would tell you that this would happen they would tell you because they didn't really want it to happen right. but they didn't want you to use their name. They didn't want you to tell them. So those kinds of things, again, getting back to your initial point, do you need the same huge teacher in the classroom? It, it has the potential of being a definite plus. And yes, you need them. Yes, you do. But at the same time, remember, some of them are sick too. <laughs> so that, you know, that, that really brings me to really kind of the point of this podcast and i really would love your perspective because in my mind uh whiskey jazz and leadership they all they all three fit and i am really trying to find a way to articulate how they fit so in your mind how do what are the similarities what's the connecting points between whiskey uh jazz music and, and leadership, because you've just talked about several key leadership principles and 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 we've talked about jazz and, and whiskey. How do the three of those connect? I think multiple ways. One, one of the things that I remember is this one instance in my first administrative appointment. Uh, I remember it was at the start of the semester, periodically during the semester members of the staff would get together outside of school after the school day, you know, over, over drinks. And it sort of loosened people up a little bit. There was a conversation that would take place that you couldn't have in the workplace. You used words that you wouldn't use. People could say things. And there was an opportunity to challenge and reflect and it not be argumentative. Jazz or music, I'll broaden it. It's a universal kind of thing. I mean, you know, people like a beat. 
it, it whether it's uh, a musical selection that has lyrics to it, or whether it's just an instrumental. For different people, I, I had gone to one of the um, faculty, informal, I forget, it was something af after a school event. You were with somebody's house and Again, we were all together, yeah, we were adults, we, we had a couple of drinks, you know, and I heard a tune, I heard Danny Boyd. It was a violin. I don't know if you've heard of, his last name is Creech, but he played Danny Boyd. It, it was jazz and blues. I had to find that album. I mean, I remember to this day, when I'm going back to your point about the connection, um, when I was at the community house, there was a consultant from, we've gotten some kind of grant, Leroy Wells. And uh, he was the consultant, you know, to try to build leadership uh, skills at the uh, settlement house. And he had this music. He's a jazz violinist. No, guitar, guitar. Earl Clue, Earl Clue, mm, that's his Absolutely. Name. Damn, he played it the whole background music. And we were there for the whole day. I said, man, I got to get that. I had to find that. There was a dance I had gone to. And uh, who was it? Way back home by now. This wasn't jazz. This was, a, this was rock and roll, popular. We was way back home by um, Junior Walker and the All-Star. Galen, I looked for years to find that album. And there was another one, um, Shorty Long, Function at the Junction. Looked for years. I was in Atlanta, found that record. There was another record I was looking for. I found it in Barbados. I looked all three United States, couldn't find that record. So again, back to your point, the connection. It creates an atmosphere for me and for the people. And, and these settings, many of them, not all of them, many of them were intergenerational, interracial settings. And the people who played the music were different folks. I mean, they weren't always the brothers and the sisters. So the connection, music is something that gets by everybody. The people who went to the jazz clubs, they weren't all brothers and sisters. All the musicians weren't from the family. And it created a setting. I mean, for the musicians, again, I'm not a person that understands the chords and all of that kind of stuff. The chords affect me, but I don't understand how you put them together and all that kind of stuff. They, they understand that. Miles' famous piano player, when he died, Miles' response was, this may be offensive to some people, he said, there can't be a God to let a guy like that go. He said, there can't be a God for that to happen. And as much as people thought of Miles, Miles thought of this piano player who happened to be white. So the connection, the whiskey, you know, um, the libation, it relaxes, it facilitates a different, a different mental set. But then the music takes it even further. 
Then people realize, I mean, you look at the musicians, many of the musicians who led this kind of stuff, you look at Frank Sinatra. Frank was a big supporter of black entertainers. I mean, Frank Sinatra didn't have to do that. You find a lot of people that would like that. Contrary to what people think, who was Marilyn Monroe? Marilyn Monroe, I forget who the woman was. It, it was a black singer who she was crazy about. And they weren't going to, uh, they belittled this woman or something. And Marilyn said, oh, wait, 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 wait. Man. If she can't sing here, I'm not coming here. And not only am I not coming here, I'm going to make sure my friends don't come. You know, so you find a lot of that, those kinds of things that have happened you know, on, on both sides of the fence. But I, I'll never forget Frank Sinatra. You know, uh, Frank said, hold up, buddy, wait a minute now. Yeah. And in addition, people don't realize Frank Sinatra's home, the architect that designed his home was a black architect. He, Frank didn't have to do that. He'd get anybody he wanted. <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you, you know, we, we um, this is about all I'm ready, I'm willing to share for free. If you got a few more minutes, I got I'd love to bring you into the VIP room for the rest of this conversation, because you're, you're now you're getting into the real heart of of how these three things connect whiskey, jazz and leadership. And I just really want to share this conversation with our VIP. So if you are listening to this and you are not a VIP subscriber, heck, it only costs you four bucks, four bucks a month. You can get not only this conversation, but every guest that I have, they give us a little something extra special. So if you got a few more minutes, I'd love to bring you into the VIP room. Yes, definitely I'm available. But let me mention one thing. One of the things that I so much looked forward to was being older, getting to be retired, having the time to have conversations like this. Because, see, there are things that you experience that you can't read about in books. Mm. You won't find in lecture halls. With, with, it can be with a fat person, skinny person, gay person, transsexual person, black person, white. That they've got things that they can tell you, share with you, that are universal. And that are contrary to what the masses think. Wow. That's it. That's it. Well, hey, for, for, for this, uh, again, I just want to say publicly on this part of the of the conversation, how much I've appreciated this, because this is the vision of what I was hoping whiskey, jazz and leadership would be about. So ra raise your wood for reserve. I'm going to raise my heel rock and we'll toast out to the other side. Cheers. 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 Hey, it's not too late. Hit that subscribe button so you're sure to catch the next episode. If you're really enjoying the vibe, leave us a review or become a VIP for guests and show exclusives. Cheers.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.